Watch this. Welcome back to the Cookie Jar Golf Podcast. I am Tom Mills, and today I'm joined by Sam Williams. Hello. Bruce Fitzpatrick. Hello. Don't forget, as always, you can contact us on at Cookie Jar Golf on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. And we've just gone through a little bit of a logo revamp. So get in touch. Let us know what you think. It's always good to get your feedback. Our streak of amazing guests continue today as we're joined by Brendan Lawler. Brendan is currently in the top five disability golfers in the world. He's had high-profile wins on the EDGA Tour, as I'm sure we'll dive into. He has played his whole life with Ellis Van Crevel Syndrome, which is a bone growth disorder. Brendan has collected victories in the German Disabled Open, the G-Golf Knockout, and the EDGA Scottish Open. Brendan also became the first disability golfer to compete in a European Challenge Tour event, which was the ISPS Hand a World Invitational at Galgorm Spa and Golf Resort in 2019. We're really looking forward to chewing through some great chat with him. It's uh, Brendan Lawler. Brendan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on, guys. Thank you. Oh, no, it's our pleasure. Um, so we usually like to start these podcasts, Brendan, with um, I think getting, getting to know you a little bit. So tell us a little bit about your golf journey and, and how you've got to where you are. Yeah, so basically, um, I actually didn't start golf till I was about 16 years old. I played a game called uh, Pitch and Putt, which is the shorter version of golf, all par threes. I think if, if you talk to any Irishman, that's how to really start with, with golf. Just to hold in your short game. And it's like, it's cheaper as well. You can join for cheap. You can uh, play with your friends. It's not long. It's, it only takes an hour to get around as well. So it was a place where my parents could go to work and just drop me to the Pitch and Putt course for the day and, and hold in my skills that way. So I uh, spent years at that, started out when I was probably 4 to 15, and then I started playing golf. And uh, just I think I got addicted to trying to make myself better and better and, and just fell in love with the game. And at around 17, I was starting to make the junior panels, and then at 18, I was starting to make the senior panels. So I knew I, was, I wasn't bad at the game. And then um, I found disability golf then in... 2018, in November, probably November 2018, and it's the best road I ever went down. It's opened some massive opportunities that I never thought would happen. It's just been truly incredible. So I imagine your short game is absolutely smoking then if, you're, uh, if you've brought, been brought up on pitch and putt. <laughs> yeah, it is. Like, it's probably gotten worse since I stopped because <laughs> you don't practice oh, really? as much. The more you play, the more greens you start to hit, the less you rely on your short game. So... Uh, I was actually thinking of going back into the lockdown, but it wasn't open, so I was quite mad about that. <laughs> Are there many courses out there, Brendan, with pitch and putt? Because it's not, I mean, over in England, there's not actually that many, really. It's quite sort of rare you see it. I agree. Yeah. It's a great school for golf. Is there quite a bit of it in Ireland? Yeah, there's a lot of it in Ireland. Like, I live in a small county called County Louth. It's, uh, you know what Shane Larry won his Irish Open in Baltray? Yeah, where he yeah. beat Robert Rock in the playoff. Yeah, so I live about 20 minutes from there. And oh, within right. within a 20 minute half an hour radius, I'd say there's about 14 pitch puck courses. No way. So yeah, loads of them. And I bet you there's some great ones on there. I bet there must be some amazing, like, kind of views and different topography yeah. and everything. It's 
Exactly, and it's it's a game where you you're only allowed one wedge, so you have fifty four degree, fifty six degree, and a putter. So you could find yourself in difficulties, and you have to play that shot with the one club. So that's what I learned most about pitch and putt. I carried a fifty four degree in my bag up to last year with no other with no other um, loft. Didn't have a fifty eight, didn't have a sixty, not fifty two. I played everything with the fifty four degree wedge. It was a bit like a savvy moment. Yeah, I was going to say, it's a bit yeah. like savvy where you've only got one stick and you just have to make kind of every shot work, right? Yeah. No, but it was um, it was great for just teaching you how to do things that you wouldn't taught you'd be able to do in one club and hit flop shots with it, hit low cut, whatever you want, you can do it. I like to go past the kitchen parts nearby and watch people with their full tour bag with 14 <laughs> That's Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But as you as you say, it's um, pitch and putts a far more accessible version of the, of the game, isn't it? It's obviously particularly great for for juniors. It takes a lot less time. Were there kind of many pitch and putt tournaments um, when you were growing up that you could kind of play in? Is there a, is there a competitive element to it as well? Yeah, so there was a lot of scratch cups. So the same as golf, you'd have a scratch cup maybe every second week, and then you had the majors. Majors would be like the All Irelands, the Leinster's see how your best you are in your region. And then you had the team events. So you can play with live, you can play with Ireland. So, but it was a dying game, to be honest, like a lot of older people played it. It was, it was more of a retirement game and, and not many young people got into it. But um, at, a, at the highest level, it was very, very competitive. Like people would go around. I won my whole Ireland one year. I won it in Rock Lodge in Cork. And I shot one under first round and 11 under second round. So you could wow. you could really go low on the courses. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Eleven under. So that was that, and they're all par That's threes. All par That's threes. It. So it's fifty four par fifty four. So I shot what a forty three. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, 43. Never, we're never having a chipping contest. You might, be, you might be able to help me clear up some of the mental clutter that's in my game. No, but if you, if you played this that's game every day, you could really, you could go low, like, you could really learn how to play it. So it's a good game. Really enjoyable. And those holes, are they ranging from sort of 50 to a yeah. short of 100 yards, some, somewhere around there? Not even that far. So the range from about 30 yards to 70 yards would be your furthest hole. So right. they pitch put works in meters, so seventy meters, which is probably seventy-eight yards or seventy-seven yards wow. or something. Incredible. No, it was cool. And, and then, and then, what was the route into to playing the sort of full game? Is it is it something you thought about when you were growing up, or or when you were sixteen? Did you just decide, right, you know, I've kind of accomplished all that I want to in the pitch and putt yeah. side of thing, and I want to start, you know, hitting some drivers and hitting some some long irons and that kind of thing. Yeah, so my granddad had a major influence on me to sort of join golf because um, I was always that wee bit smaller in stature. I had a condition called Ellis Van Preville, which shorter limbs, shorter stature, which I never had the power to play. So it wasn't a game I was sort of forced into because I probably thought I wouldn't succeed at it because I didn't have the power. You need to be strong. You need to hit the ball far on golf. So at, at 16, 15, 16, 17, I was filling out, started to go to the gym a wee bit more. Uh, started to get a wee bit stronger and then also my friends were moving on to golf too so the way my parents brought me up I they never treated me any differently they let me grow up in the game let me grow up in school with the same friends and I think that's why I'm here today because I never taught as myself any different or they never treated me any different either which was quite incredible but um no I started golf then at 16 
Um, obviously, it was it's an expensive sport to play. It was hard to get into golf clubs at the time. Uh, I think we were we were in the boom when I was looking to join, so the demand for getting into clubs was very small. But I knew someone in a place called RD Golf Club, so they got me in, started me on their junior panels, and I just took off from there. It was just as I said, I fell in love with the game as as anyone does at a young age, and loved it. Just wanted to make myself better every day. And you um you got involved with the Darren Clark Academy, didn't you? Well, I finished. I done my leaving cert in I don't know what year it was, twenty sixteen or something. And you know when you're in a loop, you don't know what to do or what's next. I was sort of I was at that stage in my life where what the feck am I going to do now? <laughs> <laughs> I had a clue. So um. My auntie Anne was researching things. I was just going to do like a business course in college or something. And um, I wasn't that bright at school. I, I just got by. I, no, I didn't have massive interest in it. And she said, would you go to Darren Clark Golf School? And then I researched it and I said, it's greenkeeping. And I said, what is she thinking? I'm going to do greenkeeping for her. <laughs> I said, I love playing golf. We don't want to do greens. But then there was another aspect side to it. There was the performance side and, Went there for two years, made some of the best friends I could ever make and enjoyed it so much. It was, it was unbelievable two years. And what sort of things did they have you doing there then when it comes to the performance side of things? So um, it was half education, half school, or half education, half golf. So Monday, Tuesday, you'd be full academics from nine to three. And then you could go to the range and the golf and to the practice greens after that and do your own work. And then from Wednesday to Friday, that's when you're being coached. You play around the golf. You're, you're just you're in like a just 18, 19 lads practicing. It, it was you couldn't. It was great crack. And was Darren quite involved with that? Or did he did he pop across much? No, he wasn't really involved at all. He um he took his name off it the year after. So okay. it was <laughs> it was it was, a, it was a, sort of a sideshow for him. I think I don't know. But I, I have a lot of respect for Darren. Not, it didn't matter. He didn't come to see us because obviously he's, he's a lot more to worry about than a golf school with his golf game. And there's so much things he has to focus on himself. So the year before, I think he came down to meet a few of the guys in his big fancy BMW. And, but um, no, he wasn't that much involved, but it was attached to the Lee Westwood School as well in uh, America. So we went to, uh, we went, went on a trip with them every year, uh, went to Irish Opens, went to British Masters, all that sort of stuff. So it brought me places as well that I never thought I'd go. So Brenda, you're playing golf now, kind of a, you know, world top five in, in, in kind of your peer group and you're, but, but going back to then, you were presumably in a peer group of kind of, you know, for want of a better term, like fully abled golfers, I guess people that, you know, weren't kind of, didn't have the same you know challenges that maybe you had physically how did that kind of work out in practice did it did that did you feel like that held you back or did you actually kind of almost schooling them from 60 yards and in did that kind of give you the confidence you needed to kind of kick on and think do you know what i can do this professionally yeah so um when i joined when i was playing i played like amateur level golf i was off one two scratch wow and to be honest it worked out it worked out beneficial for me because people would see me coming up to the tee and they'd be clapping their hands oh this is an easy game we have this in the bag and then they'd be bet on 16 and be like what the heck's happening now <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't meant to happen to be saying but um no i always i always made it work to my benefit like 
if you're a scra- if you're off one and you're playing against someone off one, it doesn't matter if you have a disability or non disability. You're a good golfer. Mm. So um, I used I sort of looked at it that way. I said if he's playing off the same as me or he's a few shots better than me, I can take him. I can beat him. He's so you need to believe you can beat anyone at that level too. And I think that's done to me coming into the disability golf category because if you know yourself that you can play against scratch golfers or plus one golfers, these disability golfers are very good, but it's obviously not the level that top amateur level is in Ireland or in England, wherever it is. So because I knew I could play at that level and, and play against my peer group that played off really low figures, it did stand to me. And how did you, um, how did you come across disability golf as a, area that you could you could pursue my again my auntie Anne found it she she's always searching the web and looking for different things and it actually popped up and she said it to my mother she said well Brad will never consider playing disability golf and ma'am actually because I was living such a normal life she didn't want to insult me by asking me to do it and then one day she said yeah sure I'll ask him see what the crack is so Mam said, Brendan, would you ever consider doing disability golf? I said, yeah, I'll give it a go. Like, it's, it's always good to experience different things. So I went, absolutely loved it. I, I First event, I saw it, it could have been a niche where I could excel at. And I just went down that road, and it was unbelievable ever since. And when was that you started playing? Sorry, Brendan, what, what year would that have been? Was that, was that about sort of 2017, 2018? Yeah, but 2018. So my first event was in November in Portugal in 2018. Okay. And, oh, that uh, was at Troya, wasn't it? Was that Troya Golf Course? No, that was the one after. This was um, the Algarve. So it was in the Algarve Trophy or something. Okay. And uh, very first event, not really knowing how good people were or what the standard was. I came forth in that event, by, and I didn't play my best stuff. So I sort of said to myself, I really and truly went in underestimating the ability of disability golfers. And I think that's why I didn't really excel in my first event. I literally went in saying, oh, this is going to be a breeze. And it was a complete wrong way of thinking of it because these golfers, were you'd be amazed what they can do. I suppose it's quite complex, isn't it? Because having a disability is, I mean, that, that word in itself is such an enormously large spectrum and covers yeah. grand amount of things that how does that play out in terms of golf is it is it is it complicate matters or does it just you all just get on with it um it is tough because there's so many categories and what we're trying to do our, our final goal at the minute is trying to get into the paralympics so that's the end result for disability golf and the problem with the paralympics is you, you can't be given out 20 medals for 20 different categories of disability so what the european tour are doing now they're trying their best to make a world tour with the best say 20 golfers with a disability to play on 11 playing field and then that's when the numbers start coming in and um, keep ellie has been doing absolute wonders for it promoting it giving us the chances to play on the world stage and you should see the amount of golfers coming out of the woodworks now wanting to play and from different countries you wouldn't believe it it's, it's mental i suppose that's partly you know a, a large part of your role right now i'm guessing is you know being an ambassador for that and trying to bring people into into the sport who might not have otherwise like a lot of people you know you'd be a yeah, absolute hero and, and there'd be a lot of people in other countries that are huge ambassadors for 
disability golf, right? So I suppose yeah. there's a large part in kind of growing and, and bringing people into the game and places like the Paralympics are kind of huge stages to get to do that yeah. on, right? Yeah, exactly. Like we're just, we're begging out for more players at the minute because the quicker we get more players in, the quicker, well, the likes of disability golf is like we're going to events where we can't win money and it's costing us a lot of money to go to. So it'd be nice one day sort of to make a living through disability golf and, and, having people recognize that we have talents and this can be like a market for us to play and to make a wage and sort of support a family or whatever you want to do and that's what modest golf are helping me out with now they're they're giving me the dream to travel the world and afford events that i never thought i'd be able to go to so um so how did that opportunity with uh, with Modest Golf arise then, Brendan? Yeah, so I had an interview with Irish Golf Magazine with a guy called Peter Finnan. And he does wonders for Irish golfers. He he does articles every week and, and what just updates, say, about Larry or Harrington, Paul Dodd, doesn't matter who it is. And um, had a full interview. I never really sat down and told him my full story. and It was just uh, the Scottish Open and the hard stuff about it and to put it in the magazine. But I finally sat down with them and had a full-scale conversation of what I do, what I represent, and all that sort of stuff. So I think Peter took inspiration from the story and and sort of knew I needed that extra step to sort of move forward. And he said, you know what, I'm going to give Mark McDonald a ring for Modest Golf. Did you ever hear of him? I said, I knew Niall was over a management company, but I didn't really look much into it. So Peter said... Right, I'll ring Mark tonight, see what the crack is for you. I think they might have a major interest in you because they do, Modest are doing things for ladies' golf, men's golf. Mm-hmm. They're, they're changing the game of management teams. Like. So um, Peter rang Mark that night, rang me back and said, Right, you've a meeting with Mark tomorrow in Belfast. So I think, Jesus, that's lovely. <laughs> Happy days. So I drove up to Belfast, met Mark, had a chat, had the crack. You know your, you know Mark yourself. He's good fun. He's calm. He's cool. So, just had a, I think we had a coffee or something. Just chatted for an hour. Told him what I did, and we just kept in touch for the last about three months after. And then I went over to the British Masters and signed a contract. It was, it was he. He told me that he could change sort of my life with sponsorships and help me out with events, and that really drove me to turn pro, because as an amateur in Ireland, you. You can't uh, you can't earn money through sponsors if you're an amateur. So it's it's a bit of a nightmare, and there was nothing really holding me back as an amateur. I sort of I done what I wanted to do. I played with the teams, and I just thought it was the it was the next step I needed to push on and what I, what I love to do. And I think when you look at you know modest and you know the involvement with things like ISPS Hander and you look at the the event in Australia I think you played in that didn't you Brendan like yeah. it's a completely different and a progressive approach to it which you know across yeah disability golf also the ladies game it's it's a it's exactly what the sports kind of crying out for I think right now exactly like people love seeing their McElroys and their Dustin Johnsons hitting at three fifty but they might want to see something different maybe people with one leg hitting a 300 yards or people short and stature hitting a 280 yards. It's something like we're not shabby golfers. People are starting to realize that we're keeping up with the pros, not obviously shooting six, seven under, but we're not holding the game up. It's something different people love to see. And it's just, I think it's the right fit at the minute. 
I think you can probably take Rory to school around the around the pitch and putt. I think oh. that forty three will probably put you in pretty good stead there. I give it a um, go, alright. <laughs> so, um, and I mean, where do you see that going then? Because I suppose you've got a couple of different avenues, haven't you, with where where the where the sport goes and and kind of growing that, and partly through the Paralympics, but then also looking at the professional tour. Uh, how does that? Are there multiple different tours around the world or is it now kind of concentrated efforts and trying to piggyback onto larger global events like the Australian Open? What are the what are the big sort of outlets for it? The big outlets are like like we played two Rolex series events this year. We played Scotland and Dubai, which was a massive step forward. So what we wanted to do, we wanted to get we wanted to get the foot in the door first, try get one or two events in. So we had three this year. We had Dubai, Scotland, and then we had Australia at the end of the year which isn't run by European Tour, but it's still a, it's a sanctioned event. So we wanted to get three in this year, maybe five in the following year, six in the following year. So it's going to be like a domino effect. And then obviously the final straw is having a disability tour of maybe having a small prize fund running alongside the European Tour. So it was, it was really, looking, really looking good until this COVID happened because you know yourself, like the European tour is going to take a while to get going again and sponsors mm. are going to sort, it's going to be hard to get full sponsors in and it's going to be a few cuts and stuff. But um, I think it can't be ignored. I think it's so inspirational and it's something people are enjoying and want to see. So I don't think it can be ignored anymore. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. As you say, although the the coronavirus has obviously brought the professional game to a bit of a halt at the moment. Yeah. In a way, it seems like golf might be one of the sports that's fortunate enough to get out, get back out there, you know, ahead of some of the others. Yeah. And and as Sam was saying there, you know, I think the inclusion of of um, disability golf and and more attention being paid to the, the ladies' game and these co-sanctioned events is exactly what the game needs to sort of throw off that reputation of of it being a kind of stuffy game of of elitist clubs and and actually the more people can see how inclusive it is and how many opportunities out there then mm. it's just going to do wonders for the sport as a whole isn't it exactly yeah like EGA European Disabled Golf Association what I love about them is there's so many categories they support like the they support wheelchair golf they support like net gross stableford so it, it entices people to join the game because there's so many categories that they can climb the ranks in, if you know what I mean. There's the elite side. If you want to sort of, if you want to play events on the European tour, you're going to try and get your game good enough to make it, to keep your ranking up so you can play them events every week or every few weeks. I'm interested to know how the, how do you get your kind of um, exemption and your status then? So at what point do you tip into that elite status that you sit in at the moment and allow you to kind of compete on the biggest stage? Yeah, so... Edgar run about 15 sanctioned events a year. So European, the Disabled Golf Association run 15 events in Europe, some in America as well. So as you are going to them under your own pocket, so you need to really pick and choose what events you need to go to. So I picked around four events a year to keep my ranking high enough that I get the big opportunities on the European tour. So at the minute, that's that's our incentive, really, to keep playing the disability events so you can get the massive events on tour. And it's incredible. Like I think that's such a good thing to work towards because 
it brings sponsors in, it, it's good for your management teams. You need to sort of keep that top bracket to benefit who, who everyone is helping around you. So that's what really inspires me to keep playing. And um, last year you played in the, um, the ISPS Hand World Invitational, yeah. didn't you? How, how was that experience? Oh, that was unbelievable. It was um, like you're mixing with the pros. Like I played a practice round with Shane Larry and Paul Dunn that week, which was really incredible. Wow. And uh, you wouldn't believe how accepting pros are of disability golfers. Like I also played a practice round with Robert Allenby in Australia this year. They just ask you to join. Like that's what I mean about the acceptance. They just they realise you're good players and they just want to help you, which is incredible. But the experience. The experience at the the world of the golf was amazing. It was um, international and internationals against Australians. In between groups, we got the crowds, we got the atmosphere, and they really made us feel important as well, which was deadly. I was gonna I was gonna say, how do they um how how does that tournament work in terms of structure and in the inclusion of uh, disability golfers? So at the ISPS hand, the World Invitation, we were in between groups, same as the Australian Open. So. I think Matt Kutcher was playing behind me or something. And Matt Kutcher's slow on a good day, so I wasn't too bad. Hope <laughs> <laughs> you didn't drop any money. <laughs> I, didn't, I, wasn't, I wasn't worrying too much. But um, no, it's just like that, that's added pressure too. Like when you have them big guys playing behind you, you, you sort of do want to speed up and you don't want to make a show of yourself either. But um, as I said, like it was only, it's still a trial run, but it's still fresh. So. We're still finding new ways to make it better and and we're gonna just experience things every time. What was the pressure like the first time you teed it up with you know surrounded by the pros? Is that is that just insane? Yeah, like I felt where was the most pressure? Probably that world invitational. It's it's it was a team event, it wasn't individual. But that was it was it was a surreal moment, like there's thousands watching you off the tee and you just don't wanna scuff it or do something bad, but there's two ways you can take pressure. You can either su- succeed with it or, or fold them. I think the reason that the 10 disability golfers are playing on the European Tour events is because they can deal with the pressure, they can deal with the crowds, and they just they take it in, they feed off it. And that's the good thing about the top pros as well. They feed off the crowd, they feed off, just love doing what they're doing and being there and, and winning really entirely. And you've now got an involvement with the ISPS Handa. You're one of their ambassadors, is that right? Yeah, I was asked to be an ambassador this year. And what they represent in the power of sport is truly incredible. And not just for golf, but for all disability sports, professional sports. They support so much. And I had the honour to meet Dr. Handa this year, and he's just an incredible guy. Um, Brendan, you mentioned that you've uh, obviously travelled around um, and, and played a lot of golf all over the place with the with the um, European, well, with the Disability Tour, we mentioned Australia, the Middle East, and perhaps America as well. Is there anything that strikes you in terms of different approaches that that these different national golf federations have towards the game? Are there are there kind of certain practices you think which stand island or, or even, um, you know, European disability golf in good stead, or are there other things that you think other countries do particularly well? Is, is there much variation in approach? Yeah, like it's, a lot of countries are doing it for, See, there's a lot of sides of disability golf. You have the mental side, which is so important for people that maybe are struggling with mental health to get out into the game, to make friends. And also there's the side of the elitism where you want to go to tournaments, you want to win, 
you're sort of taking it that wee bit more serious. And to be honest, I think with, with Edgar, I think events need to become a little bit more professional. There's people, sometimes you find people shouting on greens, cheering. I just think that's a wee bit, if we want the sport to grow, we don't want to look at like it's a comedy show or a circus. We were there because we're good golfers. We're not there. Like you need to still respect the etiquette of the game. And I think that's what we need to start doing more of in Edgar. Start realizing how, how big this game's getting and, and promote it to the best we can. So we have every chance of getting into massive events in the future. And I think that will happen when it, particularly with the approach of, you know, those co-sanctioned events and sort of playing side by side, I think therefore you start to, you see a bit of a contrast then in people playing across the same golf course and, and, and the talent and the ability speaks for itself, which is, you know, I think that's what everyone wants, right? You know, particularly yourself there. It's a, it's about letting the golf speak for itself in terms of its own quality. Um, Brendan, I'm, I'm really interested in um, a kind of, I suppose last, last 12 months has been a, um, I think a really good one for, for Irish golf in general, obviously Shane Lowry's kind of open win, um, at Portrush, have you has that kind of have you seen you know on the ground in in Ireland and kind of local golf courses? Have you seen much of a kind of boom off the back of that? Is there? Yeah, there's a huge lift. Like I don't I don't know if you're in Portrush that day, but I was there watching Shane come in, and you. I think it was more. It was like a Tiger moment when Tiger was in his prime. All the crowds following him. It was just. It reminded me of the buzz Tiger used to bring the crowds to golf and. It just had that added bit of, it was just unbelievable because it was in Ireland as well. Yeah, I think it, it certainly felt like a like a huge moment for Irish golf. I mean, Shane played absolutely out of his out of his boots to yeah. watching him on that last day. Like he was, he was near enough untouchable, wasn't he? I'm sure exactly. I saw photos online of uh, was he still in his in his golf shoes? I think at about two o'clock in the morning. I in know. A bar or something I was like going to go up to Dublin with the lads. We were in Belfast that day, Apple Rush watching the whole day and when we seen him one I, I wasn't drinking during the day and i drove up i said lads will we go up to dublin just for the crack it'd be some laugh but we didn't go up in the end it would have been too hard to go into the pubs and stuff but um no i think i think everyone is feeding off that win which is it was incredible for irish golf and um, i was just a, it was a great moment i met his parents after it actually and um, ireland have like an appreciation night for golfers that had success that year and I was sitting with Shane's mother and father and Shane obviously got an award that night himself but couldn't be there and everyone just it was just a buzz in that room that night because of what he'd done and it was it was truly incredible. What is it do you think that about I mean Ireland in in itself punches so far above its weight in terms of delivering top quality golfers. What do you think it is in Ireland that just produces so many great golfers? Just something in the water, isn't there? <laughs> <laughs> no, um, I think because there's such a various different of courses, you have your Lynx golf, you have your Parkland golf, and as amateur golfers in Ireland, you're playing all types of courses. You're getting your Lynx, and especially like Opens and all, we have a lot of success in Opens, and, and that's all Lynx golf. and uh, I don't really know. We have a really good system as well, bringing up, like, they treat their elite golfers really, really well in Ireland. Their panels are fantastic. Um, their coaches are fantastic. Like, Neil, ever hear Neil Manship, Shane Larry's coach? 
he yeah. coaches. Yeah, I've had, had no, yeah. He coaches all the underage panels and and are probably given their their approaches. He's given to Shane. He's doing the same effect on them, and we are supplying some really really good players at the minute. I mean, we we spoke with. Um... It seems to come up in too, uh, almost too many of our podcasts. But Tom Coyne, um, who wrote um, a course called Ireland, obviously walked the perimeter of, of Ireland, playing pretty much every Lynx golf course in his way. And the big thing you get from the book is a huge sense of, I suppose, community golf. And there's, um, I don't even think, uh, you know, the UK is too far off the mark, but I think it, Ireland's even further ahead in terms of making it really, really accessible and breaking down barriers for people to go and play at a young age. Um, you know, very cheap, great quality golf where people can enjoy it kind of on, on their terms, really. So I suppose that probably helps to a certain extent, right? Yeah, exactly. And there's so many. We're spoiled for beautiful courses in Ireland as well. Like you had the likes of your Port Marnox, your Baltrays, where, mm. where uh, membership is slightly dearer. But you also have beautiful courses like Sea Points right beside Baltray. You have the Dundalk Golf Club which memberships are so much cheaper and you're yeah. still playing a top quality course and it's so well maintained. I think that's very important too. It, it has to be accessible for young people coming in because it's, it's a hard game to afford to play at a young age. If you were, if you were approached by somebody saying, I'm going to do a little, um, little holiday over to Ireland in, 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 in your area and, and even beyond, where, where would you be saying, right, you've got to hit this track, this track? What, what, what courses do you think are the ones that are an absolute must if you head over your way? Oh, La Hinch. La Hinch is definitely a must. Mm. And there's lovely... Did you ever hear of the Ring of Kerry? Yeah, I've been there when I was very young. Very yeah. young, I went to the there's Ring like of Kerry. A, there's like a massive stretch there. You have like the Ring of Kerry, you have Tralee, Kinsale, all them unbelievable courses. You can just drive for an hour and play probably seven or eight unbelievable courses. So that's Tralee's a good superb, one isn't it? Yeah. Tralee's great. I actually never played Tralee, but that's definitely on the bucket list. And obviously you're traveling all around the world at the moment. Are you managing to maintain a membership and stay somewhere? Yeah. So, uh, the dog golf club are very good to me. Um, when disability golf was just starting as well, they helped me out with events. They used to pay for like half my events for travel and which was incredible. So when I turned professional, they basically said you have full access to the course. You can, uh, come and go as you please, which was really good of them as well. And uh, it's nice to have that. You need you need a base to go to. You need that sort of thing. I do a lot of practice in Carton House as well. Carton House have have seen me as like an Irish panel member and have given me access to all that sort of stuff as well. So that's the great like that's what I mean about acceptance and disability golf. It's it's a fantastic in Ireland. They're, they've really accepted me and are doing everything to improve me game and all that sort of stuff. I think I read somewhere, um, when you're out playing tour events, is it true you've got your old man on the bag? I do, yeah, Dan's in the bag. We've um stressful every now and again, isn't it? Oh, it's uh it can be it can be tough at times, but it's so great it's great to have him there as well. Like he's the sometimes the top comes off the hat sometimes, I get a wee bit angry and <laughs> he's a good man to calm me down and just bring me back to the moment and I think that's important as a caddy. You need someone to bring you back into the moment just to get you to relax and calm down and all that sort of stuff. But no, we have a pretty good success rate so far. I think we have four or five events, one going well, not too bad. So uh, he'll he'll be there for another few years, hopefully. Yeah, it get awkward when you sack him. I know. Um, like, I was trying to sack him this year and I couldn't do it. <laughs> <when he left. laughs> no, I wouldn't do that. 
But um, we have a family business as well. Um, so dad's, we have that family business now 20 years. So he sort of built it up in a position to take a bit of time off and he has staff there to look after as well. So it's a nice sort of pastime for him to just let his hair down and chill out and experience different countries as well. So it's quite nice. Obviously, we talked about um, golf getting part of the Paralympics. Is that, is that something you think is on the near horizon? Yeah, like you've seen in like Olympics and Paralympics, if, say if tennis come into the Olympics, it's usually a domino effect and tennis would be in the Paralympics. But golf, it's, it's very, it's a tough one because we don't have enough players at a high enough level to sort of have a competitive Paralympics, if you know what I mean. Like we were sitting down with organisers, I was talking to the CEO of, of the European Disabled Golf Association and I was saying to him, there's going to be stronger teams. That's just reality, it's life. Like America are stronger than say, or Ireland are stronger than France. France are stronger than Spain. You're going to have stronger teams in professional golf, never mind disability golf. So it just has to happen and just see how it goes. It, it has to be right. I think it's, it's very, it's a tough mm. one to get right. And so beyond the Olympics, do you, do you set tangible targets for a year on, or, or is it um, very sort of input driven? Or if you do have targets, what, what are you planning on uh, wanting to achieve this year? Uh, this year, I want to get to number one in the world. I've got to number two before. It's uh, the ranking systems are done by the RNA, which is which is great. It's a fair system, and the only problem with the system is if a lot of players aren't going to tournaments because they're hard to afford. Like I think I have eighteen rounds. I'm ranked number four. I have eighteen rounds, but number one is nine rounds. So his divider is much lower than mine. So if I didn't play for a year, and number one played nine times and finished second and third. He could, we, me and him could swap places, if you know what I mean. It's just, oh, yeah. it's, it's hard, to, it's hard to get your head around it. But um, I don't really, I don't focus too much on world ranking. I just want to try and win as much as I can, promote the game as much as I can, get more people into it. And then obviously a major goal was to make a living through golf. And I'm finally doing that now, which is incredible. And when uh, the golf in, in whatever form it, it happens, um, comes back to the tour. What what kind of cool events have you got lined up for this year? Well, I was meant to be playing golf sixes today. <laughs> Actually, oh, yeah, today. Man. So that was a pain. That was a bit of a pain. It was the first time disability golfers were accepted into it. So we are going to put into a pool of four and try and qualify under the same, same exemptions as European tour players. So that would have been cool. But... Um, it's hard to know what's on the pipeline now for this year. Um, we're going to ho hopefully we'll have two Rolex events to play in. If the Scottish Open, it was postponed, but hopefully it'll be on near the end of the year. And then hopefully Dubai again. And then Australia. So we probably have three events this year, which we probably thought we'd have more, but what can you do? How difficult has that been for you personally, having to deal with this mentally in terms of, you know, you're lined up for an, for an, you know, things look like they're really on the ascendancy and you're, you're lined up for a great year of golf and then the virus hits. How, how difficult yeah. is that to deal with? Uh, I think uh, it is tough. It's hard, but I think everyone has their own difficulties at the minute with it. 
and we just have to accept what's done. Like it's, I think because disability golf, where where we had got it to, and we ha- we got it to such a strong level, I it can't be ignored anymore. I think it's going to push on. It might take, it mightn't be until next year till it pushes on, but it's going to push on at some stage. So you just have to keep positive, keep doing what you're doing, and just keep promoting it where you can promote it. And you've got age on your side as well, haven't you? Very young, you know. You've got, you know, you know, you're gonna, you know, with all, all with a bit of luck, you're gonna live through what's gonna be a massive growth in the sport as well, and yeah. you know, play play right through the years of that. So I think it'd be an interesting journey. Yeah, I'm very like I'm very lucky. I'm coming in at this time. I think disability golf is about for years, maybe 15, 16 years. The organization is set up. And I'm very lucky. I've just come in now the last two years and it's taken some unbelievable strides. And it's, it's unbelievable to see. Like, I think it deserves every bit of uh, publicity it gets. And I can't wait to drive more. It's something I'm, I'm proud to be a part of. I'm proud to be a part of it as well. So it's good. Well, yeah, I mean, you've absolutely done some fantastic work promoting the sport. And um, yeah, you've been extraordinary generous with your um time so thanks so much for, for coming on the podcast brendan oh, no and, um, we wish you all the all the best and every success when the tour does get going again yeah hopefully now hopefully we'll have dubai at the end of the year we had it last year so if we can get that at the end of the year that'll be one to look forward to so that's the plan and a bit of winter sun as well exactly you can't beat a bit of sun in the winter <laughs> we don't see much of it where you are or where we are so we get enough um, rain <laughs> yeah exactly Oh, it's a nightmare. Well, we wish you all the best, Brendan. And you've got some, uh, you've got some supporters in us. We'll be, uh, we'll be cheering you on. Lovely, come here. Thanks very much for having me on, guys. All the best, Brendan. See you later, Thanks, Brendan. This.